the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. They all put their pants on one leg at a time. Yeah, and now they'll be putting their pants on instead of putting their shorts on. The senator that every Pennsylvanian can be proud of, that would be John Fetterman, is going to have to wear pants from now on if he shows up on the Senate floor. Chuck Schumer backtracked. He had said a week or so ago that he was relaxing the dress code, and everyone assumed that he was actually stupid enough to do something like that to accommodate a moron like John Fetterman, which he apparently was stupid enough to do. Anyway, uh, I've never been a big dress code guy. I shocked a lot of people many years ago when I started going on a TV news set, not wearing a coat and tie, but wearing a sweater. And I've always wondered who came up with the idea of a tie. I mean, who thought it was a good idea for men to button up their collar on an 80-degree day? And remember, this was long before air conditioning. And then tie a rope around their neck and then put on a jacket. Seems like kind of a dumb thing to do, but I conformed when I had to. And come on, this is the United States Senate, but Mitt Romney and Joe Manchin co-sponsored a bill that established a real dress code, you know, coat, tie, and slacks. And this is what the leader of the Senate actually said. Though we've never had an official dress code, the events over the past week have made us feel, have made us all feel as though formalizing one is the right path forward. I deeply appreciate Senator Fetterman working with me to come to an agreement that we will find acceptable. And of course, I appreciate Senator Manchin and Senator Romney's leadership on this issue. Senator Fetterman worked with him on the issue. Schumer had the check to make sure that this moron who wears a hoodie and shorts on the Senate floor wouldn't be offended if he had to be told to wear actual pants. I don't know. Every day we get a great lesson in why the people in Washington, D.C. should have as little to do with our daily lives as possible. And this one is as good as it gets. When we come back, uh, speaking of Washington, D.C., we will talk to the guy who founded Accuracy in Media. He went uh, down there to D.C. and confronted some of the idiots in charge of running the country and asked them to comment about what's going on with America's public schools. And in our second half hour, R. Emmett Terrell, one of the American, uh, he's of the American Spectator. He's been a conservative journalist since long before it was cool. He's written a book about all the people he's encountered in his career, from Robert Kennedy to Donald Trump. Stick around. Adam Gallette is the uh, president of Accuracy in Media, and he recently decided to confront some of your favorite people down there in Washington to ask them some questions about some of the insanity being taught in public schools these days. Apparently not everybody was excited to see him. Uh, Adam joins us now. Adam, thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you for having me. People are rarely excited to see me, unfortunately. <laughs> so what do you mean? You're, say, you're saying that the uh, you have a recognizable face among those people now? Well, I've I've cornered them outside of the Capitol building on a number of occasions, asking them questions that they're not quite adept at answering, which, to be fair, is most questions. This was just the latest round of that encounter. 
So, so you don't have interviews set up with these people. You just kind of sneak up on them. That's exactly right. It's the best opportunity to find out what they really think about things. We're not asking them for them uh, for them to have their PR person write out talking points. We're not asking for them to write something down ahead of time. We want to hear their honest thoughts. And uh, sadly, they're generally a bit more dim-witted than one might hope. Well, uh, where's the best place to ambush someone like this with a with a microphone well, and a camera? A- Sure. If you're um, at the entrance that most of the representatives use, I think it's the southeast corner of the Capitol building, you have a great shot at meeting some of these congressmen. And you never know who you're going to meet, and you never know what kind of answers they're going to have. You know, last summer we went out there and asked congressmen about inflation and what causes inflation, and pretty quickly we learned that economic ignorance is a bipartisan problem. Of course. Um, and But when these... You're not the only person down there who is likely to ambush them with a camera and a microphone. Aren't they aware and don't haven't they figured out ways to hide? Great question. You know, to their credit, plenty of congressmen who don't even necessarily have good answers or answers we'd like will stop and talk to us. And I really respect and appreciate that. You know, I met a far left congressman from California who was more than happy to answer all of our questions. We asked him if he thought if America was systemically racist, he said yes, and was happy to expand upon it. Fine, I disagree with him, but I appreciate that he had took the time to talk. Others just walk right by you, and if you follow them, they won't say a word. They just have their little, you know, intern try to get between you and them as if you're going to attack them with words or something. They're so afraid to offer their own views about honest questions without having somebody write out the answers for them ahead of time. And um, how, how many who uh, of the people you uh, asked agreed to answer when you asked them about the United States being systemically racist? Good question. You know, this time the question was a little bit simpler. So Ilyan Omar, she couldn't handle it. She couldn't answer it. She just kept walking, and I walked a good hundred feet with her, and she just entirely ignored me. But a majority of them did offer answers. You know, the more conservative Republican types immediately said, no, America is not systemically racist. No, capitalism isn't inherently racist. And then when I asked my third question, in what grade should students meet their first drag queen? Well, some of them looked like they wanted to punch me in the face. <laughs> now, the leftists, however, their response was generally, well, no one teaches that. That's not a thing. I don't even know what you're talking about. Of course, I've been in under over 250 school districts across the country with hidden cameras. And what I found again and again and again is that administrators are happy to lie to parents and teach their children that America is systemically racist and that capitalism is inherently racist. These Democrat congressmen just have their heads in the sand. So how have you been able to get that information? Is it by asking, by um, by doing it with an undercover operation, or is it just uh, accosting them in the street the same way you do these people in Washington? Well, you know, it's easy getting the congressman because we just stand outside the Capitol building in the right spot, and you could badger some of them with questions and ruin their day by forcing them to speak their actual opinions about things. When we do our hidden camera work into public education, it, of course, is dramatically different. We're looking for the highly paid administrators, the superintendents, the curriculum directors, the equity officers, which is a full-time, highly paid, oftentimes a quarter million dollars a year in compensation for a non-classroom equity officer, we get to those folks at their school district buildings using our investigative undercover tactics. And um, how consistent is it, 
How consistently do you find these people are doing things that they are think they're getting away with, and you are undercovering it? Maybe not. Maybe without them knowing it. Great question, uh, and I have an unfortunate answer for you. In a majority of times that we get past a gatekeeper, and a gatekeeper is a challenge. You know, they have these folks who are paid to tell you, no, the superintendent isn't free to meet. He loves meeting the public. He just can't do it today, tomorrow, or any other time in this calendar year. You know, getting past the gatekeeper is a real challenge. But when we get past the gatekeeper, more often than not, in red states, in red districts, in red cities, we encounter administrators and superintendents who are happy to brag to us about how they break anti-CRT laws, about how they deceive parents, about how they radicalize students by pushing the notion that capitalism is inherently racist into every facet of public education. You know, the answer, disturbingly and unfortunately, is more often than not, we find it everywhere we go. Well, how do they deceive parents? What's the, what's the trick? The, You know, it depends on the district and how close the parents are to following what's happening, because as soon as the parents catch on to any of their tactics, they just switch to another one to stay one step ahead of the parents. One thing they do is use a curriculum service called Newzella. If you're in a state that banned the New York Times 1619 project from being used in schools, that's the, you know, New York Times lying history that claims we fought the Revolutionary War to protect slavery, amongst other ridiculous lies. They sign up for Newzella. Because Newzella, this classroom curriculum service, partners with the Southern Poverty Law Center, they partner with Marxist historian Howard Zinn, and they partner with the New York Times 1619 Project. So they share the exact same content that is banned with your child, but they do it under the banner of Newzella rather than the New York Times, so you're none the wiser. Other districts use social and emotional learning as an opportunity to push these things. Other districts are more brazen, and they simply tell us that at the end of the day, teachers can close the door and do what they want. Who are some of the other people you've confronted, and and what did you ask them? Well, you know, last year the big question was, what causes inflation? I didn't even argue with them. I wanted the congressmen to show their economic knowledge, what causes inflation. And as I said, we found that economic ignorance was an incredibly bipartisan problem. One congressman said, rising prices. And I said, rising prices cause inflation? And he said, well, it's the result of. And I said, okay, well, then what causes it? And he said, well, you know as well as I do. And I I said, I don't think I do. Please explain. No answers from him. You know, uh, to their credit, many Republicans did say spending, which is true. Now, many of them are Republicans that voted for $8 trillion in increased debt under the Trump administration. And even if you like how the money is being spent, when they increase the monetary supply, it still increases inflation. And they, uh, they didn't have any comments on that. Where is, and I guess this, uh, this is dependent upon from where, from what angle you're coming, but um, who are the biggest weasels, who are the bigger weasels, um, blue politicians or red, or is there really no difference? It just depends on the question. I always fall back on Barry Goldwater's point that he made in The Conscience of a Conservative. You know, the, the Democrats tell you that they're going to grow the size and scope of government, and they do it. The Republicans tell you they're going to shrink the size and scope of the government, and they do the opposite. Well, at least the Democrats are being honest with you and telling you what to expect. So, you know, that's kind of how I view things. And I think the problem with public education and the problem with Congress is almost identical. 
you know, 95% of congressmen, 98% of congressmen get reelected, even though the approval ratings for Congress are like 15%, you know, mm -hmm. because everyone wants to believe that theirs is the good one. I voted for him and I'm not an idiot, so he must be good. They view schools the same way. They think, yes, there's a problem in public education, but it's not happening in my district. I met with the superintendent. I met with the teachers and administrators. They seemed all right. Well, I met with them, too, but I did it with a hidden camera. And they bragged to me about how they lie to you. Yeah, give me an example of, uh, and give me a name of somebody who brags about how he lies to people. He or she, I should So we say. met with... Sure. There was a, a young lady in Columbus, Ohio, who we met with, who, in her words, talked about how she, quote, tricked the parents. There was Matthew Boaz, the quarter million dollar, nearly quarter million dollar compensated equity officer, also in Columbus, Ohio, who bragged on end to me about deceiving parents. One example he gave was that a parent called him and said, I'm upset that you have a picture of the Ibrahim X. Kendi anti-racist handbook on your district website. And Boaz tells me, I asked him, you know, uh, is that your only issue, that this picture of this book is on the website? And the parent said, yes. And he said, no problem. I'll have that picture removed from the website today. And then he turns to me and says, and I did remove that picture. That book's still in our library, though. And he's bragging That's about kind that, of stuff that, we're that, dealing he, with. that he got oh, away he's with He's laughing something. and bragging about it. He's also currently unemployed. He was suspended and resigned after our video was released. Um, who was it that told you to get a real job? <laughs> I forget which congressman that was, but that's right. When I asked these congressmen those questions about education, one of them told me to get a job. I said, this is my job. He said, get a real job. And I said, same to you. Uh, I think I would argue that we, what you and I do is far more of a real job than these leeches and parasites in Washington. Um, and Accuracy in Media has been investigating school systems to find out how many are ignoring state laws about what can be in the curriculum, but... Um, and we're talking, by the way, with uh, Adam Gallette, president of Accuracy in Media. So you, you've been doing this investigating. What have you found that's been consistent that uh, maybe both sides are guilty of doing and maybe trying to hide? Good point. So the first thing I want to make a note of is these anti-critical race theory laws aren't worth the paper they're printed on. And they're worse than worthless because they provide a false sense of security to parents. And what many of the administrators in states like Tennessee that banned CRT pointed out to me is that these laws were written to accomplish nothing. These anti-CRT laws were written by Republican legislators to appease Republican voters. That's it. They weren't designed to do anything. They weren't designed to improve education anyway. They were just written to appease you. So it, oftentimes it can become tricky to get attention for some of our videos in some states because the Republicans don't want to be exposed for the fact that they merely passed a law that placated voters rather than accomplishing anything. That's a, a really common theme that we see. And the other thing that's a little surprising is that, you know, we meet with these administrators who brag about deceiving parents, but they don't do it because they're evil people who mean, you know, terrible things upon the world directly. They do it because they think it's in your child's interest of learning about social justice and oppression and how your child is either an oppressor or is oppressed and all that. They think it is in your child's best interest to learn those things, even if it's against the law. Now, you and I, of course, would argue that ultimately the parents should be the ones determining what's in your child's best interest. And I, I it, after doing this uh, for as long as you've been doing it and, 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 and the depths to which you've been doing it, um, how do you maintain 
how do you prevent yourself from being just completely and totally cynical about all this? Or are you already? I was going to say, you know, I, I'd like to think that I'm not a cynic, but I'm rather a skeptic. But honestly, in many ways, I think people merely view politics incorrectly. And what I mean by that is we should judge politicians not by their rhetoric, not by their intentions, but by what they accomplish. If they do the right things for the wrong reasons, I'm kind of okay with that. Uh, you know, this whole just red team versus blue team thing is so cynical, is so obnoxious to me. People forget, as an example, that in the final six years of the Obama administration, spending grew at a lower level than at any time since Calvin Coolidge. Now, terrible things still happen in those final six years. I don't like any of his, his judicial appointments. I don't like Obama very much and didn't vote for him. And um, the spending only dropped and flattened out because of gridlock because we had Boehner running the House and Harry Reid running the Senate. But again, is our goal intentions or results? I like spending to be flat. And for the final six years of the Obama administration, it was indeed flat. Conversely, during Trump's administration, and he cut taxes, especially in his first two years, personally, he did a lot of things I like. He also grew the national debt by $8 trillion. We need to view it much more as a transactional situation where we view and judge these politicians based on what they've done, not their rhetoric, not if they hold a Bible and proclaim to be a Christian, but by what their actual policies look like at the end of the day. We're talking to Adam Gallette. He's the president of Accuracy in Media, AIM. Um, so we had a debate last night, uh, Adam. What was your impression of that? How much of what they were saying uh, was um, coming out of both sides of their mouths? Ah, you know, that's a great point. And one of the things I liked in this debate was, I forget if it was Tim Scott or someone else who went after Nikki Haley for proposing to raise the gas tax by 10 cents in a time where we're all worried about high fuel prices. We're all worried about inflation. You got a candidate on the stage running for the Republican nomination who wanted to raise your gas tax by 10 cents. I love that sort of stuff. I think these debates should focus far more on direct attacks on policy. Because if they're not going to hold one another accountable for their policy decisions, who is? You and I, we don't get to go on that stage and, you know, tell politician X, you promised to do something and you instead did the opposite. And I don't think our political debate is furthered by, you know, empty rhetoric and focus group buzzwords and them telling us about their mom and their dad and their wife and their kids. They're not running for a pageant queen. They're not running to be Miss America. They're running to run the government. So with that in mind, I want to hear what policy decisions have you done in the past? Have you stood by your word? And if you hadn't, the other candidates ought to call you out for it. Of course, the person who has the easiest go of it as a result is somebody like Vivek because he's never held elected office. He can promise you anything and tell you whatever you want to hear, and he doesn't have a record to prove that he doesn't believe it. Last question for Adam Gallette, of, uh, president of uh, Accuracy and Media. I said at the top of the show here, I, I, meant, I told the story of uh, Chuck Schumer working with John Fetterman, he said, in order to pass uh, a law that now requires a, a dress code at the Senate. And just the idea, the stupidity of him saying he had to work with a moron like John Fetterman. And my point in all of this always comes around to the same thing. We get daily examples of why we should have, why these people in Washington, D.C. should have as little as possible to do with our lives. I've got about 30 seconds. I'm guessing that you really have to have seen that and come to that conclusion. 
Well, certainly. You know, Washington is where problems come from. It's not where problems are solved. So regardless of what the issue is, you need to not look to Washington for the solutions. Just because you've recognized a legitimate problem doesn't mean that these bozos are capable of solving it. These are narcissistic many times incompetent people. There were problems, as I said, get created, not where problems are solved. Well, at least they're going to be dressed well. we got that going for us. Uh, Adam, we, I, uh, definitely we do. We can be sure of that. Hey, Adam, I appreciate you coming on always. We'll have you on again. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Okay, that's Adam Gallette, president of Accuracy in Media. We'll be right back. R. Emmett Terrell is the founder and editor-in-chief of The American Spectator, and he was a conservative journalist uh, long before it was cool. He's written a book called How Do We Get Out of Here? Half a Century of Laughter and Mayhem uh, at The American Spectator, and he joins us now. Emmett, thanks for coming on the show. I'm I'm glad to be with you. So um, I think we should start with the story that led to the title of this book. It's pretty amazing. (laughs) Well, uh, I was standing on the stage at Indiana University in 1968, and I was the only one on the stage except for another person by the name of Bob Kennedy. And uh, when Bob Kennedy finished his speech, he suddenly burst through the curtains, and he found only me there. And he said to me, how do we get out of here? That's that line of his is stuck for years, and I've carried it around with me for years. And uh, so I said, "Well, how about to the, a little bit to the left here? No, no, that wasn't it. How about a little to the right? No, that wasn't it." Finally, we came back to we got back to his car, and he put his hand out to shake my hand, and I reached into my pocket and gave him a Reagan president button. <laughs> and he smiled and laughed, and I smiled and laughed. And that was in the days when there wasn't polarization oh, yeah. as the way there is today. And and um, that's that's the story. And and by the way, I I've ca- I kept that. How do we get out of here? I kept that in my pocket, in my my shirt pocket, for a long period of time. I figured I'd have to have a use for it, and I did. Yeah. Took you a while, but you you got got a chance to use it. Um, so, where were the Secret Service? This was Bobby Kennedy. He was assassinated not long after that, and uh, four how, weeks, how, how four he, weeks afterwards. Yeah, how was he wandering around with just and and just, it's just you and him? Well, I mean, his his son is wandering around America today. Yeah, that's right, right, and has no right. security clearance. So uh, there, there, the secret actually the Secret Service is not to blame for what happened to Bob Kennedy Sr. or what might happen to Bob Kennedy Jr. Mm-hmm. because uh, it's up to the White House to yeah. release the Secret Service. Well, um, you and I must be close to the same age because I, I actually went to a Richard Nixon campaign rally in 1968. I was in college. And um, I ended up voting for George McGovern, believe I mean, I was a Nixon guy, but by the time 1972 came around and, and all the stuff that was going on with Nixon, and it was my first time voting, 
I I cast what I knew was a uh, of a protest vote, and that is still the only time I've ever voted for a Democrat. It's been a few years. So, uh, what was it like for you being a conservative on a college campus in the late '60s? Well, in this book, how do we get out of here? I tell you what it was like to be with six presidents because I I was close to six presidents or at least close to five presidents. Uh, I couldn't get too close to Bill Bill Clinton, but I did uh, mix with him a little bit. Uh, and this, this, there are stories in the book about how I mixed with dozens of, and then also there's a, a story there where I mixed with Madonna. Wow. <laughs> he was interested in getting published in the American Spectator. So I gave her her chance and never heard from her again. What she wanted to she wanted to write about something for the American Spectator. Yes, yeah. yeah, she'd become literary. She actually even had a um, Upton Sinclair button on on or, or Upton Sinclair uh, stamp on her uh, letter to me. Well, I, I I first became aware of you when with your. Um, during your battles with Bill Clinton, if you, if you want to call them battles, you were writing stuff about uh, Bill Clinton, and I'm. it's been a long time, but I seem to remember you being pretty much trashed as a conspiracy theorist and a maniac for some of the things you were saying about Bill Clinton, but as it turned out, uh, you were right, weren't you? I was right on everything. In fact, I was vindicated, <laughs> and Bill, of course, Bill and his lovely wife, Bruno, uh, did, didn't do very well toward the end of their career, and I thought that that was fitting. Now, were you, were you um, writing about Clinton before he came, became president or right after he became president? Because I read a book by a guy named Roger Morris, I think. It was called uh, Partners in Power, and that's when I first became aware of what a bad guy what a bad couple they were, uh, because everything that I read, this was early and right after he was elected president, but the book was very much mostly about what he did in Arkansas. And, and so if you read that book in 1993, nothing that he did as president is a surprise because you had read about him doing exactly the same things in Arkansas. Is That's that what you found? Absolutely true. That's absolutely true. Um, but this book isn't solely about Bill Clinton. This right. book is there, there's a happy side to this book. Okay, uh, and and that is Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was a very good president, as we know. He was the best president, uh, and I knew him very well. And I traveled with him, and I did a lot of good things for for him. And he did a lot of good things for me. He was a great man. And uh, the the way that the liberals have characterized him is astonishing. How you could a man who ended the Cold War was some kind of stupid person. It's it's astonishing to me. Mm -hmm. Well, how did you get so close to Ronald Reagan? How did I get so close to George H. W. Bush or for George W. Bush? I don't really understand how I managed either. I just kind of did the same thing. With George, with, with George, uh, that I did with uh, 
uh, other people, like uh, uh, with the people on the stage at at uh, at Indiana University, I kind of slowly minced up my way up to them and got got to know them that way. Although Ronald Reagan, I was he called his aides called me in when he was running in 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 seventy uh, six, uh, I think so. I I was much closer to and I was I was much closer in political positions to to uh, Ronald Reagan and, and he once again I just cannot say enough he was a wonderful man. What uh, could you how how well did you get to know him uh, not as a politician but as just a guy? I got to know him very well and this there's a lot of stories in this book about what a ordinary man he was what a regular guy he was uh, uh he, he would he, he, he invited me to set up a dinner at the white house for him and for, he wanted to change the culture of america and he asked me to help him on that uh and he was just a regular guy he was a, there was nothing phony about him we're talk, talking to R. Emmett Terrell. He's the author of a book called How Do We Get Out of Here? Half a Century of Laughter and Mayhem at the American Spectator. Okay, so you mentioned uh, some laughter. What about the mayhem? <laughs> well, let, let them read the book. I, <laughs> I don't want to give too much away. Yeah. Well, it's you... you um, when did you start the Spectator, and did you, did, was it just a, a startup on your part, and it started as a small publication and just grew, or where, where did it come from? Well, it came from Indiana University, where there the, the, was we were pretty conservative students out there at the time, and we started a magazine, and the magazine took off. Eventually, it had three hundred fifty thousand readers. But back, this is pre-internet. How did you get that kind of uh, exposure? Well, uh, we wrote very well and very yeah. amusingly, and people still admired in those days funny articles by funny people. And you have um, you mentioned that uh, it's mentioned here in the release about your book that you um, after. The, you, you had a friendship with the post-presidential Richard Nixon. Um, how did you get to know him, and what kind of a guy was he? Well, I got to know him the way I got to know a lot of people. I wrote, wrote him a letter and asked him if I could visit with him. I visited with Richard Nixon and found him to be a very reasonable man. He never did anything crazy that I saw. Not with me, he didn't. And I, I frankly don't think he was... Anywhere, I think it'll his, the history of this country will show him to be a regular guy and a, a worthwhile model for other people, for younger people to model themselves after. So, what happened with Watergate and how it ran away with itself? Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to give that story away. But you have that story in the is, book. Yes, I do. Well, you can give me a little uh, hint. Well, the smoking gun wasn't what it was made out to be, and uh, people are finding that out now. Oh, with the CIA and everything, after. yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you'll have to read the book. Okay. <laughs> and and um, you also, uh, you had a competition, it says here, uh, also warm relations with William F. Buckley, who had a pretty important uh, conservative publication himself. What was that about? Well, I... Bill uh, Bill and I were good friends. Bill and I, Bill was a mentor to me. Uh, and I always admired him, and I always will. And I don't know that there was anything that ever came between us. So, but you had a comp. You 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 were in competition with National Review. Yes, of course we were. I mean, we had a larger circulation by half by the uh, Clinton years. We were at, as I said, three hundred fifty thousand readers. Mm-hmm. And they and they are they, the Clintons uh, almost put us out of business. They cost us over a million dollars in legal fees. But right. I think everyone who's come that, that knows the history is sees that they turned up the heat in the kitchen, but we cooked their goose. <laughs> well, I, I refresh my memory because I I definitely remember uh, you were very much a voice. Um, out there, maybe I don't know if saying a, a voice in the wilderness would be an exaggeration, but you were very much out out there vocally and constantly uh, talking about what a corrupt I don't know if I want to say couple they were, but especially Bill Clinton. And there was a lot there, there wasn't a lot of cooperation from the media, and obviously there was a lot of pushback because you were conservative, and most of the media would just push back for that reason, but. Um, what would you say was the thing that you uncovered about Bill Clinton that maybe in the beginning people thought was uh, insane and now it's not insane at all? What would be something that you talked about him early? Well, what we revealed was that he was a tremendous womanizer Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, very rude to women. And uh, as I say, we they raised the heat in the kitchen uh-huh. and we cooked their goose. <laughs> I mean, there was no one. There was there were only a couple of other people out there that were saying the kinds of things we were saying, and we weren't saying anything very outrageous. One of the reasons that Tom Wolfe says that the American Spectator's piece, the Travel Gate, was more important than any other piece published in the twentieth century is because. We with with that piece, we ended the sexual revolution. Uh, Tom Wolfe thought it was a very momentous piece. I do too. Which piece was that? No, we the, the Trooper Gate piece. Oh, okay. The Trooper there were several pieces by uh, our our writers mm-hmm. that that uh, Trooper revealed. Gate. Yeah, Trooper Gate. Yeah, that's this is this is uh, state troopers in Arkansas helping Bill get women, right? That's right. That's right. And they were pretty good and at I, it. They were. They, I think they were. They were called residuals uh, amongst the <laughs> troopers. Uh, well, I, I, we have about a minute and a half left here with Emma Terrell. He, he wrote, "How do we get out of here? Half a century of laughter and mayhem at the American Spectator." Sounds like you have some great stories in there. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering, were you possibly the least shocked person in America when Monica Lewinsky became famous? She became famous for having a kind of sex with Bill 
that he had reported that he he had uh, claimed to know about more years before uh, she ever appeared on the scene. Uh, she vindicated us. Her stories vindicated us. And uh, at the end of the long, long day, I feel that we were vindicated. And most people that have studied it have agreed to that. The did American you, Spectator was vindicated. Did you ever think at that time that his wife could run for and almost become president of the United States? No, I couldn't believe it. And frankly, uh, Tom Wolf again said, uh, Bob Tyrrell, if it hadn't been for Bob Tyrrell and the American Spectator, she might be president of the United States today. Good. That's that's enough right there for me. Uh, you refer to yourself as Bob, and I, I've been calling you Emmett. So I, uh, you're R. Emmett Terrell. So if are do you go by Bob? I guess you must. Yes. Well, any just just call me often. Don't call, don't, <laughs> don't be too rude. All right. I, I it sounds like a great book, uh, Bob, and uh, or Emmett, however you want to be called. It sounds like a great book. How do we get out of here? Half a century of laughter and mayhem at the American Spectator. Good luck with it. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, I had a good time. Good being with you. Okay, we'll be back. Well, I watched America's Got Talent last night. (laughs) As I said here yesterday, I had no interest in watching the debate, and I'm very glad that I did not fail to miss it because – What I plan to do, as I said here yesterday, I I guess when you're doing a talk show like this, maybe some people would expect you to sit in front of that stuff for two hours. I'm sorry. I deal with it all the time in preparing for the show, and I've seen enough of these people that I just know that there's not – I mean, I don't know, but I assume there's not going to be any ground broken, and apparently there was not. It was the same old thing. Uh, not one person on the stage other than Ron DeSantis has any chance on earth of getting the Demo- or the Republican nomination. You think Mike Pence is going to get it or or uh, Chris Christie? So I, I kind of view that debate last night the way I think about football, Thursday night football tonight. It's Green Bay at Detroit. Now, I'm going to watch the game. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be watching other stuff. I'll be doing other things. I'll have it on my TV, and I might tune it in in the fourth quarter to see, or the second half even, to see if it's a good game, and then watch it to the end. That's kind of the way I would have liked to have watched the debate if I was going to watch it. I just couldn't bring myself to turn it on last night. I didn't want to look at it. I knew that it would make me want to throw up. And the, and the, the reviews that I read told me that I was right. I, there was not. There was. I haven't seen any. I've seen some of the highlights, and I've, I've read and, and heard and seen a lot of the post-debate commentary. Nothing, nothing there. Zero. Nobody said anything that was the least bit unpredictable. And I don't know when the next debate is, but they ought to. They ought to have. I don't know. Ron DeSantis debate Donald Trump, or forget it. How about that for an idea? I'll talk to you tomorrow. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.